You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Let's continue in our time of worship by opening God's Word together. If you have your Bible, will you grab that and go to the book of Exodus? Our text this morning is Exodus chapters 7 to 10. Chapters 7 to 10. And uh, also, I hope you grabbed your communion elements on your way in this morning. We will be celebrating communion together uh, after the message today. So feel free to sneak to the back and grab those communion elements if you need to. Also, if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one this morning. You can grab one of those Bibles that are on the tables in the back of the room and use it to follow along along with us today, and then just hang on to that Bible. That's our gift to you. If you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? The Word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, rejoicing the heart. So listen carefully to these words. I want to read Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 7 to get us started. Exodus 7, 1 to 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we're back into our study of the book of Exodus after taking a break last week. So let's think our way back into the story, shall we? Hundreds of years before Exodus, before the book of Exodus and the story of the book, God revealed himself to a man named Abraham. And he promised Abraham that his descendants would one day become a great nation, that they would live in a great land, and that through them all the nations of the world would experience great blessing. As we come to the beginning of the Exodus story, those descendants have indeed grown into a great number, becoming the people of Israel, but they do not yet live in the great land. In fact, they're slaves living in the land of Egypt under the harsh hand of a Pharaoh who fancies himself a god. In the early chapters of Exodus, God protects prepares, raises up, calls a man named Moses. Moses, along with his brother Aaron, will lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. They will be set free from their slavery and set free for worship and witness, participation in God's plan for the entire world. But this will require the participation of Moses. When God comes to Moses on Mount Sinai, he says, I have come down to deliver my people. Come, Moses, I will send you. After making a number of excuses, Moses finally agrees to participate in God's plan. He returns to Egypt, and one of the first things he encounters is opposition. 
Opposition from Pharaoh, opposition from his own people. The mountaintop experience is officially over and doubt and discouragement set in. But God is not finished with Moses. He speaks to him again. He reminds him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the all-powerful, ever-present, self-sufficient, one true God. I am with you, Moses. I have remembered my covenant and I will deliver my people. And so Moses, with fresh courage and confidence in God, prepares for a second audience with Pharaoh. But just before he goes to the Pharaoh the second time, God says this in Exodus 7, 3 and 4, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen. Now, the first time we saw this language, that language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it was back in chapter 4, when Moses is preparing for his first audience with Pharaoh. And you might recall on that day, I said to you, hardness of heart is part of the plan. But I didn't really unpack that statement at all. I just left you with that mental mosquito for a couple of weeks. Didn't explain it. Just kind of left it dangling there. Okay, hardness of heart, part of the plan. But why? How? What's happening with God and Pharaoh here? Well, now's the time to come back and answer those questions as best we can. There is throughout the Exodus narrative a mysterious back and forth. There are times, like in this text here in Exodus 7, where we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there are other times where we're told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So which is it? Between chapters 4 and 14, God hardens Pharaoh's heart exactly 10 times. And between chapters 4 and 14, Pharaoh hardens his own heart exactly 10 times. The Exodus narrative upholds both divine sovereignty and personal responsibility. On the one hand, God is completely in control of everything that happens here. And on the other hand, Pharaoh is completely responsible for his actions. This language of hardness of heart, in the Bible it means something a bit different from what it would mean if we used the expression today. Today, if you say that someone has a hard heart, we mean that they're cruel, that they're cold, which certainly the Pharaoh was, but that's not really the point here. In the Bible, a hard heart refers to determination, resolve. It can be a positive or a negative quality. It's much more like when we would say today that my mind is made up. The point here is that Pharaoh is resolved in his rebellion. He's resolved in his opposition to God and thus he will become the object of God's judgment. As the Exodus story unfolds, we discover 
that there are two ways to know the one true God. The first is to know His mercy and salvation. The second is to know His wrath and judgment. Make no mistake, in the end, everyone will know one way or another that Yahweh is the one true God. This passage that we're studying today, chapters 7 to 10, our focus, is another one of the best known bits of the story, commonly referred to as the 10 plagues. Though really that's a misnomer. The Bible never uses that, defin that designation 10 plagues. A plague is a pestilence, a disease. And as we'll see, most of the events, the strange events that happen in Egypt are not diseases. So that really doesn't fit what happens here. It's much better to think of this as the 10 strikes, as in the strike of a fist. That's more consistent with the Hebrew terminology used throughout the passage. We get a hint of this in our English translations. In the next few verses here, Exodus 7 verses 4 and 5, God says, I will lay my hand, my fist, on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. These are the 10 strikes of God in his judgment against the Pharaoh. When Moses first went to Pharaoh and said, God says, let my people go. Do you remember what Pharaoh said? He said, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Well, now he's about to find out. He'll find out as all of creation rises up against him. Remember, this Pharaoh was an anti-God tyrant. He fancied himself a divine figure. He fancied himself a God. He thought he was in control of his land. Well, now he will find out who truly holds sway over this land and over all of creation as earth itself rises up unleashed against the evil. We'll look at the first nine of the 10 strikes today. And we can divide those into four categories. With each stage, God ratchets up the judgment. It becomes more and more severe. The first stage is a warning. And it begins with a prelude here in chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Before a strike, there's a warning. God had given his servants, his messengers, the ability to perform certain signs, demonstrating to Pharaoh that they had indeed come from God. And so Moses and Aaron go, and they perform one of those signs. They throw the staff on the ground, and the staff is transformed into a serpent, likely a cobra. The implication here is, Pharaoh, don't mess with Yahweh. 
Don't mess with Yahweh. Let his people go or his strike will be severe. But Pharaoh's not impressed. He's not impressed at all because his magicians can do the same thing. The magicians of Egypt, by their secret arts, are able to throw their staffs on the ground and transform them into serpents. Now, how do they do that? How do they do that? Is this sleight of hand, stage trickery, something like a, a modern-day magician pulling a rabbit out of his hat? Possibly, some scholars have argued for that. But I think it's much more likely that these magicians wield a real power, a dark power. We have no good reason to think that this dark power was limited to ancient Egypt. In the New Testament, Jesus says to his followers, beware false prophets who will come in sheep's clothing performing mighty works. This same dark power is at work today. It's just harder for us to see it. It's harder for us to see it because the people who wield this dark power, this demonic power today, they don't refer to themselves as magicians or sorcerers. Those are antiquated terms. Now, what we have today is doctors who say, I can transform this man into a woman. What we have today is suppliers who say, I can transform your pain and your anxiety into pleasure and bliss. Same dark power is at work in our day. But what the Exodus story teaches us is that this dark power it will eventually be exposed. And one day it will be eradicated, gone forever. And even now, it's a limited darkness. These magicians, these sorcerers of Egypt who in the prelude of the story seem so very powerful, watch what happens to them as the story unfolds. They seem powerful now, but the time will come when they acknowledge the limitations of their power. They cannot do what this God is doing. Watch what happens to them. The warning, well, it doesn't work. Pharaoh's heart is hard, and so the first strike comes, and the first strike brings blood. Verses 20 to 23, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. The first sign is another warning. The water, the water of the Nile, what a moment ago was a source of life, now becomes a sign of death, blood. Well, if ever there was an ominous sign, a warning, a clear warning, surely this is it. The water to blood, a clear warning of all the horrors that lie ahead. But again, the Pharaoh is not persuaded. His magicians can do the same. And so Pharaoh simply retreats to his palace, probably to have a glass of wine, leaving the common folks to worry about the water. And so God ratchets things up to the next stage. The time for warning has passed. Now Egypt will experience exasperation. The second strike brings frogs. 
Chapter 8, verses 6 to 8. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. With stage two of the strikes, God brings irritation, misery, exasperation, but not yet true affliction. He's showing his patience, even with the tyrant, even with all the evil of Egypt, he's showing his patience. Frogs suddenly appear everywhere. Before, the Pharaoh could retreat to his palace for his glass of wine, but now even his palace is not a frog-free zone. They're everywhere. They're in the Egyptians' bedrooms. They're in their ovens. Everywhere, everywhere they're turned, there's more frogs. The magicians, they step forward and they show their power again, but now they show their stupidity because the last thing anyone wanted was more frogs. And that's exactly what they provide, more frogs. But Pharaoh is still not convinced. He seems to be for a moment. You see that? He seems to be. He says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs and I will let the people go to sacrifice. But what happens here will continue to happen throughout the story. Pharaoh shows signs of repentance, signs of confession, signs of faith in the one true God. But it remains only as long as the conditions demand it. As soon as the frogs are gone, Pharaoh returns to the tyrant that we all know so well. So the signs continue. The second, the third strike is Nats. Chapter eight, verses 17 to 19, Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In the first sign, God turned all the water into blood. Now he turns all the dust of Egypt into gnats. Gnats everywhere. Think of mosquitoes everywhere, and you'll get a good idea of the menace. Now, for the first time, the magicians can't mimic the sign. They go to the Pharaoh and they say, this is something else. We can't do this. The way they phrase what they say to Pharaoh is intriguing. They say, this is the finger of God. It's like they want to confess that something beyond us is happening here. Something truly divine is happening here, but at the same time, they don't want to offend the Pharaoh. It's the finger of God at work. Pharaoh, you still have your mighty hands. You're still in control of the land by all means, but perhaps it's worth thinking about this finger that seems to be at work in our midst. So the sorcerers say, Pharaoh still is not ready to consider any other divine power. And so the strikes go on. The fourth strike brings flies. Let my people go, God said, that they may serve me or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. But on that day, 
I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Now, flies come. So many of them, it's tough to imagine it. Now, if you've ever had a, a fly in your house, and who in Florida hasn't, right? Then you know that flies don't have boundaries. When a fly gets into your house, it makes your house its house. It goes wherever it wants to. It becomes a bother to the people in every room. But in the Exodus story, these flies do have boundaries. God sets apart the land of Goshen. That's the land where his people dwell. He sets it apart. He makes a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel, his people, and they will be protected. They will be spared from all of the coming judgment. Why? Simply because they are God's people. In the new Hunger Games movie, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, Viola Davis plays the sinister Dr. Gall, who is the head game maker and the mastermind behind the Capitol's experimental weapons division. And she engineers a new type of snake, a rainbow of destruction, she calls them. They're very, very dangerous. Unless, unless they know you, if they know your scent, if they know your sweat, then you're safe. The key to protection is being known precisely. Precisely. It's exactly what happens here in the Exodus story. God's people are known by him and so they will be protected. All the judgment that comes, things are only going to get worse as God will once again ratchet up the judgment in stages three and four. But whatever comes, it will hit Egypt. God will strike them. But his people, they will be protected. They will be spared simply because God knows them. The time for exasperation is past. In the next stage, God brings true affliction to Egypt. Everything up until now has been a warning or just a way of trying to get Pharaoh's attention, a nuisance really. But now, Pharaoh and Egypt will know the pain of loss, real loss. The pattern at this point, point of the story remains essentially the same. God will strike Egypt, he will shield his people, and Pharaoh will remain resolved in his rebellion. God will strike the livestock. All of the animal assets in Egypt are killed. This was an enormous economic loss for Egypt. Then, with the sixth strike, the Egyptians themselves are hit with some sort of disease. They break out in these sores all over their own bodies. Until this point, it would have been easy for the Egyptians to see all of these external things happening and simply think they had been caught up in some unfortunate event that was no fault of theirs. 
But now, with this, the sixth strike, their own bodies are infected. Now it becomes even clearer that the judgment is directed at them. The seventh strike, God sends a great hailstorm, hail and fire from heaven, and it destroys the land. Then what little is left of the land is devoured by God's army of locusts. Locusts can eat their own weight in a day. So what little green was left is gone in a matter of moments. As all of these things happen, as the Pharaoh looks out and sees his people diseased, his land devastated, again, it seems that he shows signs of repentance. He even cries out at one point, I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He even pleads with Moses again, please take away this death, and I will let the people go. But the Pharaoh's repentance, it's not real. It's not real. You see, there is such a thing as pseudo-faith, fake faith. Whatever fear of Yahweh that Pharaoh pretends to have, it's gone. That the moment the conditions no longer demand it. As soon as God removes his hand of judgment, the Pharaoh continues to exalt himself against God and against God's people. And so things enter the final stage. We're in the end game now. Stage four brings death. The ninth strike is darkness. Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. The ninth strike doesn't bring death. It brings the harbinger of death. Light is the sign of life. The Egyptians lived by the sun. It's hard for us to imagine anything like this today because we control light. We summon light with the flip of a switch or with our own voices. We carry glowing rectangles on our persons everywhere we go. The ancient Egyptians, of course, knew nothing of these inventions. They lived by the light of the sun, and suddenly the sun is snuffed out for three days as if it were a candle. Who can do that? Who has such power? Only the creator, only the one who hung the sun in the sky in the beginning. The light is taken away. It's a sign that death is coming. Darkness falls on Egypt. Death is coming, but its shadow comes first. Ironically, at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh threatens Moses with death. He's as arrogant as ever. The Pharaoh cannot see that death is coming though not from Egypt, but to it. All of these strikes of the divine hand, 
all to make one big point. There are two ways to know the one true God. The first is to know his mercy and salvation. The second is to know his wrath in judgment. How then do we come to know, to experience God's mercy in salvation? How do we avoid the judgment from our place in salvation history, from our vantage point? The answer is clear. Look to Jesus with faith. Not a fake faith, like the one that Pharaoh had for a little while there. Real faith, a faith that perseveres. See, centuries after these signs of judgment in the book of Exodus, Jesus himself performed signs of salvation. He turned water, not into blood, but into wine, bringing joy to the party, joy to life. He showed his divine power over nature by taking a few fish and turning it into an amount of food large enough to satisfy a colossal crowd by calming storms. He showed his divine power over disease by healing those no one else would touch. And most importantly of all, Jesus didn't send the darkness, he entered it for us. In Luke's gospel, there's a description of the scene of the cross. And here's what Luke tells us. In Luke chapter 23, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. Do you see the connection? This is the darkness of judgment. From the sixth to the ninth hour, as Jesus is being crucified, as he's hanging on the cross, a great darkness covers the whole land. It's the darkness of judgment, just like the ninth sign in Exodus. But here, here, God's judgment is being poured out on Jesus, his own son. In Matthew and Mark's telling of this same story, they add that from the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why are you judging me? Now, Jesus knows exactly what's happening in this moment. The words that he utters there, they come from Psalm 22. Jesus quotes the Psalm to show us what's happening. The judgment of God, the darkness is coming on Jesus so that we will not be judged. He is bearing our punishment for us. He enters the darkness so that we never have to. Do you see the good news of the gospel here and how it connects to the Exodus story? How is it that we know the mercy of God and salvation? How is it that we avoid the judgment? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He entered the darkness for you. And when you place your faith in him, never will you know the strike of God in judgment. Never will you know the darkness. So look to him today. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Father, thank you for this good news of the gospel told long ago in the Exodus story. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who did indeed enter the darkness for us. He lived a perfect life. 
He died a sinner's death. God, I pray that if there is anyone here today who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they would believe and call on him, that they would do so even now. God, for those of us who are your people, we come before you humbly today, thanking you that we have been spared from the judgment, your righteous judgment upon sin and evil. Thanking you for the gift of salvation and confessing that we fail you each and every day. We are just like the Israelites as we journey with them in this story. We'll, we will see how stubborn they could be at times, prideful, forgetting all that you've done, God. We're the same way. So we come before you asking for forgiveness. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors the way you teach us to. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for the things we have thought, the things we have said, the things we have done and left undone. Forgive us. We take refuge in that wonderful promise of your word that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All because of the blood of Jesus who entered the darkness for us. In his name we pray. Amen.